Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Hello, today I'm speaking with Lawrence Hamtill. He's a financial advisor at Fortune Financial. He's a 20-year veteran of the industry. His work is very unique in terms of how he positions portfolios and thinks about the market. He thinks about the market in a much different way than the traditional point of view. His work emphasizes sectors and industries, while I think most of the financial community is more concerned with factors and size and growth and value. He's a proponent of anti-ESG industries, such as tobacco and defense, and his blog is a gem featuring many articles written over many years, detailing a lot of his different thoughts and perspectives. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I look forward to talking. Yeah. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your history in the industry? So I started in the fall of 2002. I was sort of in between my my associates and my bachelor's degree, just trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. I was pretty good with spreadsheets and modeling. And so I joined a small financial planning firm. They didn't focus much on asset management. It was mostly mutual funds and things like that. Uh, They were focused mostly on the advisory business. And so they hired me on while I was finishing my bachelor's just to do some modeling, portfolio trade, stuff like that. And the goal was to kind of get a little bit more sophisticated on the asset management side. So that's kind of where where I began to cut my teeth. And of course, that was at the tail end of the dot-com bust. And the market still hadn't quite bottomed yet. This was pre-Iraq war. There are other things looming on the horizon then. 2005, that firm was acquired by the gentleman, Dennis Wallace, I work with now. He's kind of the senior partner of Fortune Financial and got my Series 7, all those fun things, and started to have my own clients. And we started our RIA in 2008, just before the market crash. So, of course, the perfect timing. And we've grown since then. And, and my evolution has been sort of from Excel monkey to registered rep to investment advisor. And I've evolved in my thinking over time, just understanding industries throughout the economic cycle, trying to build a better portfolio that is what I think optimized for most of my clients who are high net worth individuals. Many of them retired, looking to extract their cash flows in retirement. So that's kind of what has shaped my thinking, I guess. Maybe it's a common thing when people are young in the business to be more acceptable of risk taking. I've decided or I've noticed that I've become more risk averse because just because I'm getting old. But that's just kind of my my evolution and, and how I think of things. And along the way, I've as you build your your practice, you think how do you communicate with your clients? What's your mm-hmm value approach for prospects and and many firms they i think they they look at scalability and so they they sort of it's not a critique it's just a, a it's just a business model where maybe they focus mostly on the planning aspects and sort of commoditize the investment stuff whether that's through indexing and so on i think that's important 
but in my daily activities, talking with clients, those conversations get to run dry a little bit. A lot of it's sort of fire and forget. I always like to talk about how their portfolio is going to be shaped going forward by the economic cycle, why they own this and not that. And it's just easier to do when you can talk about the 30 or 40 positions in the portfolio, the industries they represent, their prospects going forward. So I think of it as kind of like I can pitch an investment portfolio based on what I think it's going to do because of the, the stocks that are in there versus looking at mutual funds or ETFs. And that's sort of backward looking mm-hmm. uh, in my view. So I, that's just kind of how I've come to think about things and how I communicate with clients and it keeps it interesting and there's always something to talk about. So that, that's what I've always thought was really cool about your work, because whenever you talk to a lot of a lot of more traditional finance people, they tend to get more esoteric with like factors and size. And you talk about real industries, what's actually happening to these actual companies. And I always thought that was that was a very interesting approach and it explains a lot of behavior in the markets. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like back to your roots, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what are factors other than just an outward expression of, of what those industries are experiencing? You know, you can you can look at low volatility or is that just reflective of utilities and staples and healthcare that are economically acyclical? You know, the tech sector, the tech sector in general tends to have is definitely cyclical, but those cycles tend to have longer legs than than other cyclical industries. So there's kind of a de facto momentum aspect there over periods of time. You know, so it's it's always this overlap. Is it a factor? Is it a sector? Is it the cycle that's going on? Nothing really happens in a vacuum. I think that's often overlooked when people look at surface level data, especially when it comes to indices. Right. Exactly. One of, one of the areas where you've really touched on that that's expanded my horizons a little bit is when you talk about international markets. So a lot of times you'll hear international markets are cheap and they're the place to be. And then you'll you'll typically break it down and say, well, no, actually, they're not cheap. They just are exposed to some sectors that are perpetually cheap and aren't particularly good. Yeah. I, I think the a, a lot of financial decisions, or at least portfolio decisions, are predicated on mean reversion. Mm-hmm. And you can look back and over time, and it's sort of evident when you're, you've got the, the high, benefit of hindsight, but in real time, it's it's very difficult. And you look at individual country markets, and not many of them, maybe with the exception of Japan, are diversified enough to consider that they've they've really got a deep enough market that would constitute anything more than a handful of sectors. And, and so then it becomes easier to distinguish, well, what's the bet that you're really making? Does the is this overweighting of international stocks a bet on the dollar weakening? Is it a bet on the financial system going through a, a bull market cycle like it did in the early 2000s or 2007? Because most industries, or sorry, most country indices abroad are heavily weighted in financials. And at least that used to be the case. There might be a little different now with the, the rise of luxury stocks in Europe and so on. So it's just important to understand how those cycles are affecting those indices over periods of time. I mean, you can look back at the cycles when the U.S. did better, foreign did better, but it wasn't just happening in a vacuum. What was going on in the global economy at that time that that made that happen? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way to look at it. And kind of on, on that same vein, something you've written a lot about is the Schiller P and its usefulness as a metric. So what do you think is the utility of the Schiller P? Do you think it's a useful uh, metric? You know what? It varies. And, and I think if you look back, for example, there's been some a lot of data to suggest that it is very useful from a, a predictive standpoint. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that data, well, let's put it this way. The utility of it has lessened over the past 20, 30 years. And some of that may be because the transition in the U.S. economy, at least, has been more towards a cash flow return to shareholders. So I think a more useful tool is arguably the what they call the CATY, KD cyclically adjusted total yield, which includes dividends and buybacks. Mm-hmm. That's the cash return to shareholders. That's probably a little bit more useful metric, at least when you look at the R squared, things like that. You're also betting on mean reversion and valuations. And of course, we haven't talked about margins and things like that, which would have to be part of the discussion. So again, valuation is a useful tool, but just looking back at historical data, you say, okay, well, this is the highest Schiller PE since 2000. And prior to that, it was 1929. Well, there's going to be a lot of difference when 7% of the U.S. market is Apple versus 2000 when it was what? General Electric, maybe. And 1929 was probably RCA or something like that. You know, <laughs> we've come a long way. And, and so I'm not discounting it as a tool, but I always think that valuation metrics are useful as a toolbox. You've got mm-hmm. a variety of different metrics that you can choose from. If they're all pointing in the same direction, then that's probably indicative that they're correct. But if one is kind of an outlier, you know, and I actually kind of think forward PE is the most useful. There's a lot of data to support that they have, at least in the recent 30, 40 years, some of the more predictive metrics rather than CAPE and so on. I've got a Twitter thread on that if anybody's interested. So I, I think that's just, you know, you kind of have to have a toolbox and never look at any one thing because then you're you're sort of setting yourself up for just trying to confirm your priors. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that there have been many different variable, like different measures that have been useful in market timing and then eventually weren't useful anymore. Like I know one is the dividend yield right. on, on the total market, which worked like a charm through 1958. And then whenever the dividend yield went below the 10-year yield. It was the market crash, and in 1958 yeah. that broke. And you know, we—I I don't really think you can use one thing and say that's the answer, and that'll predict future returns. Not 100, percent and I think it's also people have have argued that you can use relative valuation metrics to time U.S. versus international. That totally neglects the effect of currency. So oftentimes you'll see, I don't know, a tweet or an article or something saying that emerging market stocks are cheaper than the US based on <laughs> CAPE. Well, then in the very, very fine print, it usually says something like, and local currencies only, you know, and that's obviously a big if when it comes <laughs> to emerging markets. And, and I could go on for a long time about that. So, you know, it, it's if it were that easy, then we would have a lot less heartburn as investors if it was all it took just to time those two metrics. Yeah, that would that would be very nice if that world existed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you think when you're thinking about an investor trying to invest globally, I, I would guess that you would think that like a global market portfolio, like market cap weighting the world is not the way to go. So how would you 
position a kind of global market portfolio? So when I when I build a portfolio, I I guess I try to think of it as both top down and bottoms up. So you think of the global economy and the and how that's represented by the sectors of the um, within the stock market. And granted, those are somewhat arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know, technology, healthcare, consumer staples, whatever. And and so you look at I've got this global opportunity set. I can invest in Europe, Canada, the U.S., wherever Japan doesn't matter. But I want to own, I want to have broad representation. So I want every sector represented, but I want to favor some industries over others because I feel like I can make a better difference picking industries within a sector based on what I think is going to happen or, or what my view is on the on the market and the economy mm-hmm. versus trying to pick whichever sector is going to win. And And I think, okay, given those parameters, where are those opportunities? best around the world. So if you think about something like railroads, in Canada and the US, the class one railroads are world-class companies. Mm-hmm. That opportunity does not exist, as far as I know, to any great degree outside of Canada and the US. There might be some reasons for that. I could be wrong, but I think in Europe, for example, that the the railroads are sort of obliged to carry passenger freight, which is, well, you wouldn't want to call passengers freight, but you're obliged to transport <laughs> passengers along with, with with freight and so on. And of course, passenger rail is probably money losing overall versus freight, which is highly profitable. So that's probably going to say, okay, if I want to own railroads, which are critical infrastructure, very hard to duplicate, you know, regional monopolies and so on, that's going to dictate that I have that in the US and Canada, for example. If you look at consumer staples, those are generally global companies. Nestle, for example, in Switzerland has been around forever. It does business in 160, 170 countries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I want to have that global footprint for a staples company, I might look at Nestle versus its US peer group and Procter and Gamble. So you start to create this filter where you're thinking, okay, I want to have a sector neutral portfolio. I want to favor some industries over others. Mm-hmm. And then I, I want to start by which companies within those industries, no matter where they're located, fit my criteria of high quality, global footprint, those sorts of things. And then you start to go from there and then you end up with your your portfolio when it's all said and done. Now, you mentioned sector neutrality. So how do you think, that? why is that what you should go for in a portfolio? Because a lot of the indexes, obviously, the sectors, the size of sectors are constantly shifting in big ways. So why would you prefer a sector neutral approach? So I think oftentimes when it comes to success and anything in life, and not least of all investing, mm-hmm. the fewer variables you introduce into a portfolio, the fewer decisions you have to make. So the greater your chances are for success. Now, you will definitely end up having a portfolio that will track the index more closely than if you were making concentrated sector bets. Mm-hmm. But the goal, as I see it, at least for my clients, is not necessarily to make dramatic bets with their money. It's to generate an acceptable rate of return within the acceptable parameters of risk. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of how I approach it, thinking, I don't know when technology will fall out of favor and energy will come back in favor or vice versa. Those two tend to go in opposite directions many times. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not willing to make a big bet because the consequences of being wrong in my mind are far worse than the potential of being right. So Mm -hmm. that's just not a bet I'm comfortable making. I do just think that when you look at within sectors, you have a much bigger advantage if you understand certain industries within those sectors, whether it's defense and trash collection inside of industrials or auto parts retail inside of consumer discretionary. I feel better off making those overweight or underweight decisions than I do trying to figure out if I should have 20% energy when the index is at 5%. That's a pretty big bet. And like I said, the consequences of being wrong, at least from a behavioral standpoint with tracking error, it's going to be hard to stick with that portfolio when you're sort of out in the wilderness and underperforming. Yeah, especially when you're talking about the two that you mentioned, technology and energy, they can have huge swings and the cycles are pretty difficult to predict. So, right. Yeah, there's no need to be a hero. You can you can get a great rate of return by having that kind of approach. Yeah, and I think I think you know maybe I'm kind of a wet blanket, but as I get older, I feel like the most useful thing in this business is just surviving. Mm-hmm. And if you sort of are in the middle of the pack, you you wash out those highs and lows. You realize that oftentimes success in this industry is not getting a lot of things right. It's getting as few things wrong as possible. And and I think that's just an overlooked characteristic. It's not going to sell you, you know, you're not going to get a a lot of acclaim for being the least wrong person, but you know, you're not going to get a lot of celebrity status. And, And it's just kind of funny to look back, you know, at different periods like the end of the tech bubble. And I think we'll look back at 2021 and see these star fund managers and how quickly their stars faded. I'd much rather be, you know, just kind of playing my game and letting somebody else be a hero. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that's the lesson of a lot of great investors with good long-term track records is that they're not necessarily trying to hit a home run every time, but they're still surviving and doing well through multiple cycles. And then you're right. I mean, there are these fund managers who will have a great decade or might do well in a single market cycle and it only takes one wipeout to completely destroy a track record. Yeah. And I'll tell you, one of my, this is sort of one of the things, I need to pull up the statistic here, but one of the things that we kind of stumbled on in this conversation is kind of like the low volatility mm-hmm. effect. And I pointed out earlier in the year from the last 30 years, from 91 through 2022, low volatility as a as an index outperformed high beta by 1% a year but it underperformed in 19 out of 32 calendar years so mm. you know the the discipline of just playing your game can be agonizing when you're seeing all of your friends make a ton <laughs> of money in short periods of time and and it's really like the death of a thousand cuts but in the end all of those little elements of compounding, which not least of which is avoiding a a huge drawdown Mm -hmm. that adds up in the end. It's just very difficult from a behavioral standpoint to to avoid that. I don't know if it's envy, but but just watching everybody else do well while you're kind of sticking to your boring game. Yeah, that is that is behaviorally hard. Yeah. And low volatility, that's it's fascinating because as a factor, it shouldn't work. Like it defies all conventional finance theory where more risk equals more return. Why do you think low volatility works? Why do you think it over the long run it it delivers a, a better return? I think with lower risk. You know, the the textbook 
the textbook explanation, I guess, if I'm not butchering this, maybe Cliff Asnes will correct me if he's listening <laughs> out there. But there's this idea that behaviorally, investors want a lottery type outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, the old joke that nobody wants to get rich slowly. So we tend to favor these high beta stocks, which move quite a bit one way or another. You know, look at NVIDIA, for example, or mm-hmm. Tesla or any number of those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, you can look back at any period in time and there's going to be stocks like that that have six, seven hundred percent returns in any given year. And you look like a fool if you didn't own those. But mm-hmm. then, of course, they disappear, fade from memory and it's on to the next shiny object. With low volatility, you know, the idea is that investors overlook these stocks. A lot of, a lot of times the low volatility tends to be heavy in utilities, staples, things like that, that they're mature companies. They're cash flow positive, they're very high quality, but they're not going to double or triple overnight, so they're often neglected. You can look back historically, and, and, and evidence of that is the just the case that oftentimes they've almost never been overvalued. Maybe the nifty 50 period for staples was one exception. Coca-Cola in the late 90s would be another, I guess. But the those those sorts of companies, they just are sort of overlooked, but they steadily compound over time. And their earnings growth is very rarely in the top decile, but they're almost never in the bottom decile of the market. They're just constantly somewhere in the middle, compounding over time, growing and growing, and it all adds up. But of course, that's easy to see in hindsight. You know, when you're going mm-hmm. through it, it's just sort of being like, oh, well, Procter and Gamble's been around for 200 years. You know, who's to say it's going to keep <laughs> growing? And then at the year is 2060, and it's still, you know, chugging along, and and God knows what kind of new technology will be around attracting attention at that point. So to me, the behavioral element of it is is critical, which is linked to valuation. You know, investors always seem to underestimate the earnings potential of these mature, high quality sectors and, and the industries within them. I don't know if that's all of it, but I think that's a large part of it. And it really is just kind of, you know, the the pain of of boredom and this type of investing and, and fund managers I think I think this was a Eric Falkenstein element in one of his early research papers on the subject which is fund managers are paid basically by attracting assets and what attracts assets other than huge returns right and mm-hmm. so fund managers like individual investors are drawn to these low probability high payoff type stocks and so they neglect these more mature industries. And I think that's the same same effect, although differently explained. And I don't know that you can quantify it. That's right. maybe, a, it's, a, it's a logical explanation to me, but, but it makes sense. And I think you can see it in real time. If you look at the ETFs over the last 10 years and the fund inflows and outflows, and of course, investors are always putting money into what has worked recently and selling what has been out of favor. And, and so in my mind, that's just kind of how it works. So the, it won't be totally evident until you've got 20, 30 years worth of data to really break it down. Yeah, that makes sense. And you definitely have seen in the last few years that people really like lottery tickets. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 It's, it's been a wild time for sure. Yeah. Um, do you think that the performance of the Dow is related to this kind of sector neutral low volatility phenomena or do you think something else is at work you're talking about the dow jones industrial yeah Yeah, the dow 30 yeah i know you've written before about how it outperforms the total market which is another thing that shouldn't really happen yeah (laughs) and it's fascinating yeah no i mean i i think 
the funny thing is if, if there's a maybe from a factor standpoint after we were just talking about you know factor investing the 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 dow has tended not to make big sector bets so the s p of course is just capitalization weighted so you can look back historically and see in the early 80s it was heavy in energy 2007 a lot of banks and so on 2000 a lot of technology the dow kind of washes out a lot of that plus it it has a, a higher quality filter to it i mean the s p mm. of course being a, an s p index you have to have earnings positive to be included in the index so that's a kind of quality filter the dow has a whether by whether they're conscious of it or not the committee who picks the stocks in the dow have tended to favor more of a value quality approach so mm-hmm. compare or pairing value with quality it's not so much what you own by but also what you exclude so i think those dynamics it's kind of a multi-factor index has lent itself to outperformance over time Although kind of like the high beta, low volatility discussion, you'll underperform during those periods when there's one sector that's really in vogue, whether it's energy, financials, technology, whatever. So the the Dow, I think, I'm not sure what their exact sector overweights or underweights are, but it might just be as simple as pairing value with quality versus just, you know, having uncapped exposure to whatever is working at that point in time, like the S&P can tend to do at certain points throughout its history. And that makes sense. So moving on to some of the industries that you really like, I'm going to go right to the big one, the one you're known for, tobacco. So tell <laughs> me tell me the case for tobacco investing. So, I mean, it depends on how much time you have. Like, it's not for a long time about it. <laughs> but, you know, the history of tobacco is kind of interesting. You think back to, I think, maybe even the French experience in, in India when they were trying to colonize over there. And tobacco was the one commodity that was profitable in that period. And, and it's just sort of funny throughout its history how, how persistent the profitability of tobacco has been for really hundreds of years. I think the first cigar factory opened in Spain in the 1500s after Columbus discovered, you know, the Western Hemisphere. And so it's just been a big industry for a long period of time, but consistently making money for investors. And so not much has changed since then, obviously, the way that people have consumed it from, I guess, cigars and chew to snuff and then cigarettes and and then maybe nicotine is what I should say instead of tobacco. But and now we've got vaping and, and modern oral products. But the regulatory environment for the industry sort of precludes much competition. So there's not a lot of new entrants into the space. Mm-hmm. We've seen that with the FDA and vaping recently. So you have this pretty wide moat around the incumbents, which things like prescriptions on advertising which means that it's your market share is almost unassailable in, in most environments. That lends itself to pricing power. Mm-hmm. And of course, the nature with which these products are taxed, it allows these companies to raise their own prices. So net of excise tax, their earnings are growing and growing and growing, despite kind of not insignificant decline and in, in volumes over time. So there's really no category like it that I can think of. If you look back historically, tobacco stocks did well during the depression. People tend to smoke more more when they're stressed out. You know, (laughs) they tend to do well during inflation because their cost of goods sold is negligible. They have pricing power. 
So it's almost like, in a way, the, the perfect industry that doesn't have much economic cyclicality. You have a very wide competitive advantage based on the regulatory nature of it. You have pricing power. You have a hard kernel of, of the population that's maybe in, in absolute terms about 10% of the population who are users of the product. And globally, I think it's about a billion people. You know, mm-hmm. it's amazing. You look back and the government is sort of your business partner because they rely <laughs> so much on, on revenues. It was true and, and many governments throughout history. It's true in China today. I think the number is something like eight or nine, maybe 10% of Chinese government revenues come from their state-owned tobacco monopoly. We know the amount of money that goes through state and local governments and so on. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if they'd ever admit to being conscious of it or not, but the government is your business partner. They sort of regulate away your competition in exchange mm-hmm. for collecting and a share of the profits. So there's just a lot to like about it. And again, you can go through periods where, you know, I like to say that every industry is cyclical, but the nature of the cycles are different. So if tobacco, if the stocks themselves are not cyclical, in the sense that they're tied to the ups and downs of the economy, they're certainly tied to the ups and downs of the regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the administrations with their FDA appointees are just going to turn the other way. Some of them like Dr. Gottlieb with, with the Trump administration, you know, were very vocal and aggressive, which, you know, I would argue tampered down valuations circa 2017. You know, that affects sentiment, but not really the the overall performance of the company. So it's just a unique industry. There's a lot to like about it from a factor standpoint. It's usually pretty cheap. Everybody's always convinced they're going out of business. <laughs> Tremendously <laughs> profitable, high quality. I think you'd be hard pressed to find any five or 10 year period where tobacco earnings were significantly negative. Can't say that about many industries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's just, it's if you go out and you look at the Professor Bessenbinder studies from just about any country market, oftentimes in the historical best performers, you'll find one of the tobacco companies, whether that's Imperial or BAT and, and the UK, or trying to think what, what they were, other ones would be in Europe, but you can look in Greece and, and Spain and Germany, I think, and also, of course, the US with Philip Morris and Reynolds. So, you know, it's, it's been kind of a universal phenomenon. Yeah, and Philip Morris, it's been probably the best performing stock of all time. But yeah, fascinating industry. And I, I often wonder if the if the government intended when they imposed all these regulations, like you can't advertise and things like that, if they intended for it to be such a benefit to the to the industry. It seems like they were trying to kill the industry and hurt it, and they ended up making it more powerful than ever. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's hard to say. Like they said, they would probably never admit it, but that's what ended up happening. And- I think in aggregate, you can go back and look at the historical data from using the the Ken French data series. It was only since the early 70s, which was about the time that the government started to regulate the industry heavily, that those stocks really started to outperform the broader market. They were at times, I mean, never really out of favor, but they really started to separate once the industry became regulated that allowed them to consolidate there are quite a quite a few mergers. And of course, if you can't advertise, that has a lot of free cash flow that you can distribute to your shareholders in the form of dividends. So 
You know, it's a recurring phenomenon throughout history when industries start to mature and consolidate, and then they focus more on return on invested capital and cash flows to shareholders versus going for growth, which may or may not pan out. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't real I didn't realize that the tobacco stock returns were better after that. I always thought it was more of an ongoing thing over like a hundred years. But so you're saying that once those regulations started to come on board, that that's when they really started to take off. Yeah, that's what the the time series seemed to indicate. You know, it could also just be because that's about the time that Philip Morris really went into overdrive and it was obviously the highest weighted, but but it, it doesn't it's not just Philip Morris versus everybody else. I think Reynolds also did very well. And, uh, trying to think Lorillard, some of the others that have since been merged away, they all did pretty, pretty well because they have their established brands. As you know, their their consumers are very brand loyal. So, you know, it's 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 been interesting to develop. It always seems like there's something interesting to say about it. Now, do you worry at all with smoking is is declining? So there's less people smoking and the tobacco industry has been able to make up for that by raising prices. Do you worry that at any point in the future that's going to break? Or do you think the tobacco industry has a lot of runway to keep increasing prices to make up for lower overall demand? There's a couple of points to make there, I guess, but the math is pretty straightforward. If you if you can raise your prices, which I think they've done at around something like 6% per year, mm-hmm. net, of, net of excise tax on a per cigarette basis, versus a decline rate, which has accelerated in recent years, but historically has been in the low single digits, then you've got quite a bit of runway to extract cash from, from that ever-shrinking pool of consumers. Now, volumes has historically been pretty noisy. We're going through a pretty, pretty large downturn in volumes, coincident with higher inflation and economic softness. I think it's been the, the weakest in, in volume term since 2009, which, which would make sense given the inflation backdrop. But really, if you look at the U.S. market, which far and away is the most profitable relative to average hourly earnings, cigarettes are still pretty cheap, especially compared to the rest of the developed world. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine on Twitter, you, you may follow Price to Wealth. He's got a pretty good sub stack. And he wrote about Australia, which is where cigarettes are the most expensive. Mm-hmm. And they raised taxes substantially. I forget the exact numbers, but it's maybe four or five times as expensive as they are in the U.S. What they found was wow. they they reached a point where the effect of incremental costs on this on the cigarette consumer basically declined. So there's this hardcore group of people who are going to pay whatever to smoke. And of course, you also have somewhat of a, of a factor in that as the black market because. You make things so expensive, you're going to make it profitable for people to undercut that through smuggling and so on. That definitely plays a part. You can see that in some evidence with some of the states in the Northeast with their aggressive tax policies. So I think people are going to continue to consume them at an ever, I mean, ever declining rate. Mm-hmm. And it's always important to think about the denominator effect when you look at the percentage of the population that is smoking, well, the overall population is growing. So that that hard kernel of smokers of about 30 to 35 million as a percentage is always a decline, but in absolute terms, it's been pretty constant throughout the last 30 years. So Mm -hmm. the math really does make sense. And I would point out too, that this effect is, is evident 
and other industries as well. Railroads, for example, have seen their volumes decline somewhat persistently, but they've been able to charge more per carload because they have a captive group of people who need their services shipping things like grain and coal and so on that you can't really put on a truck and move easily. It's also true in auto parts retail where you don't sell as many oil changes and spark plugs because they last a lot longer, but they also Mm. cost more. So, you know, that effect is seen not just in tobacco, but in other industries. So, you know, I think there's some precedent for that to continue. The main thing that really keeps any tobacco investor up at night is the prohibition possibility or the regulatory impact of a severe restriction, whether it's nicotine or menthols. I assume it will never happen given how the regulatory regime is structured, that it can be litigated and challenged. But it definitely is something that, you know, at least keeps the multiples under under wraps because, you know, there's always that sort of Damocles hanging over your head that at some point they could try to do something in that front like they did with alcohol before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but hopefully they've learned their lesson with alcohol. Um, I wouldn't bet on that. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Prohibition usually doesn't work out very well. And you have a hardcore group of people that enjoy this product and they're going to figure out a way to get it. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the solution, right? Tax and regulate versus prohibition. We've seen what's happened with narcotics and so on. Not to open that can of worms, but... You know, it's there's a lot of unintended consequences when you go for a more draconian approach to these consumer habits. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. How do you think about tobacco alternatives? So I know that the, the companies are moving into vaping and things like that. Do you think vaping can possibly make up for some of that lost demand? Yeah, I think there are a variety of different reduced risk products. Obviously, you've got heat not burn products like Icos from Philip Morris. And, mm-hmm. and I, I forget the name of some of the competitors like Imperial Brands product. And of course, you've got vaping and you've got modern oral, these the uh, pouches like Zen and on and so on. I think cultural preferences are going to vary. So I've seen it articulated, I believe by Imperial, that they think the US is going to be a predominantly vaping market. Scandinavia has a strong history of, of oral nicotine with these pouches, mm-hmm. like from the former Swedish match, which is now part of Philip Morris. And then heat not burn, which is popular in Japan, I think not least of all, because vaping is very restrictive there. So having a, a menu of choices for your consumers is going to be critical for all of these companies. It's far from certain which ones will prevail and if they do, how profitable they'll be. There's a lot to be determined on how regulators will perceive them. We saw with Juul, for example, that, I mean, I think it's it's very, very easily argued that vaping is healthier than smoking cigarettes. But if it starts to get too popular, especially with the younger demographic, then there's a chance of regulatory decision-making, like like what happened with, with Juul recently and, and teen vaping. So the outlook, as always, is sort of clouded by what the government decides to do, both from a regulatory standpoint and also from a tax standpoint. You would think if these are truly reduced risk products, the government would want to subsidize them in the form of lower taxes and making them more broadly available. Mm-hmm. But recent recent decision-making or proposed policies, tax increases, those sorts of things make me think that maybe they don't understand that. 
I think there was some, some indication, maybe it was 2021, whenever they were arguing about this Inflation Reduction Act, you know, about making vaping and so on a tax as heavily as cigarettes, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as a health decision, you know, that doesn't really make sense to me. Not a lot of politics does. So, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on nicotine in general. It will be consumed in some form or another. How it ends up playing out, it's anyone's guess because there's just a lot of uncertainties there. But there's plenty of, there's a big enough profit pool for all of these things to play a role, I guess. And if that sounds like a cop-out, it probably is. <laughs> but, you know, I think cigarettes are going to be the, the dominant form of nicotine consumption for at least the foreseeable future. But, you know, I, I think that all of these other products will erode that share over time. And I'm not sure if there's going to be cross-brand loyalty. You know, if a Marlboro smoker wants to use a competitor's reduced-risk product, I mean, ideally, you would convert a smoker to your own vaping product and not lose that customer. But it's just, it's hard to tell if these products are going to maintain that same brand loyalty that cigarettes have enjoyed for so long. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. It's it's a pretty attractive industry. So moving on to another industry where we have some overlap in our portfolios. I know that you're a fan of the defense industry. So do you want to talk a little bit about the defense industry? Yeah. So one of the things when you look at the so-called sin industries, the classically alcohol, tobacco, defense, and casinos, I guess, gaming, the I think this was Rabico who did this paper. They enjoy this quality plus value tilt. And so from a factor standpoint, that's what makes these industries do well. Casinos historically have been a lot more cyclical, a lot lower quality and not always cheap. So they have tended to lag their send stock brethren, so to speak. The defense Mm -hmm. industry is very unique in the sense that you know, based on the critical nature and the sensitive nature of the technology, it's not like the U.S. government's going to approach China to build a defense program <laughs> or platform, you know, yeah. and build, us, build us a fighter, right? Because these products, these projects are sometimes decades in the making, the government sort of treats these industries as de facto parts of the Pentagon. So they've got all of these workers with security clearance. They don't want them in the unemployment line. So they kind of dole out these contracts to keep everybody employed. You can't afford in the 21st century to run the risk of being like the US in 1941, where all of a sudden you find yourself in a conflict with only 140 tanks and inventory. I mean, we're not going to mass produce these very basic machines of war. They're highly complicated, highly technological platforms that are $30, $40 million at least for a fighter jet and so on. So that lends itself to the steady stream of income from the government in the form of these contracts. And, And if you read Skunk Works, for example, which is the kind of history of Lockheed Martin, They talk about how the government has treated all of these companies paternalistically, where they wanted to keep that infrastructure base or that industrial base more, more said better, constantly active and engaged, kind of like muscles of your body, just keep it in shape just in case there is a conflict. And that has Mm -hmm. been a really, really interesting development because within the industrial space, defense is one of the few things that is not really cyclical. I mean, it trades off of what's going on in the broader market, of course. But the steady state of spending from the government has really made it kind of a low volatility 
industry. And in fact, I think Credit Suisse did a report a while back on how defense companies are more like consumer staples than they are other industrials because mm. of this consistently profitable nature of the work that they do for the government. And as I said in the in the opening, you know, there's you doesn't get much of a wider moat than the government saying, you know, <laughs> you're not they're not going to approach somebody else for this work that has to be done. So, you know, there's that's kind of how I think about that. There's just a lot of pricing power, a lot of and, and because there is not a lot of growth there, there's this focus on shareholder returns. So they're very, very adept at their capital allocation, divesting non-critical parts, mm-hmm. uh, focusing on free cash flow, buying back stock, rewarding shareholders. You know, there's there's a it's sort of like a tobacco industry, you know, where there's just a highly mature industry that generates a ton of cash and they focus on on shareholder payouts versus trying to grow uh, and shoot for the fences and some other industries where they do that. Yeah, and it makes sense. And I mean, the only thing that could really kill it would be if the government decided to significantly cut defense spending. But my point of view is if we didn't really significantly cut defense spending after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's probably never going to happen. They're probably always going to make sure that that's well-funded. Yeah, for sure. And, and as you realize, too, that as long as there's a Congress who depends on re-election, mm-hmm. they like to keep that money flowing through to the constituents in their respective areas. So it's both a jobs program and a national security program. So I think everybody wins in that environment. Considering what the government spends money on, developing new technologies, and of course, having a strong military, if you believe as I do, Mm-hmm. But that sort of, I don't know if it prevents, but it certainly deters conflict. It's a lot cheaper than fighting a war. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I like what you said about how it would be difficult to just create a modern defense infrastructure overnight like we did in the 40s if we ever found ourselves in a war. Like These are extremely sophisticated pieces of technology, and you can't just build that in a couple of years like we did during World War II. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's the main difference between now and the pre-war period. Yeah, absolutely. So another industry that I thought you've written about that's pretty interesting is self-storage. So what's, what would you say is the case for self-storage as, as an investment? So Americans, as you probably, as you probably agree, <laughs> like their junk, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not aware of any other country where hoarders is a, is a thing, but here, Land is cheap. Houses are bigger. There's a lot of places to store junk. And then, of course, you have things like eBay and garage sales. And you think, oh, I don't want to let this go. And Americans tend to be pretty mobile. I I don't know what the exact stats are, but Americans move around a lot, at least compared to other developed nations. And so that requires a lot of auxiliary storage space when people are in transition, moving from A to B, or maybe they get divorced, or there's a life event, or who knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And and so historically, this industry has been very attractive in the sense that there's not a lot of overhead. I mean, you have a bunch of garages essentially on a flat piece of concrete or asphalt protected by a gate. So maybe you have one person manning the gate, or even now maybe it's automated with a with a card. Mm-hmm. You're not having to go fix a leaky toilet at two in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, cut grass. And those general maintenance things that you find with multifamily or, or single family housing, for example. So the other issue, too, is that it's largely month to month. 
So you have a lot of pricing power because they're not very long-term leases. And Americans, I would think they what they pay for self-storage facilities on a monthly basis is still a relatively small part of their discretionary income. So it's still broadly affordable. The other element too is the industry has been extremely fragmented. I want to say that maybe the top two or three publicly traded companies have no more than 25 to 30% market share as judged by square footage available. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of room for consolidation within the industry. And of mm-hmm. course, it's a scale business. So a lot of these mom and pop operations don't have the, the same resources that the large operators do. So as far as real estate goes, there's a lot to like about that from a, from a pricing power standpoint an overall earnings standpoint, and and there's just not a lot of capital expenditure that's required. So there's a lot of cash flow that's flowing through there. And it's pretty boring. Obviously, Mm. there's going to be a a tie to housing and so on. So it's not totally, I mean, it is a cyclical industry, but it's not nearly as much, I don't think, as some of the other aspects of the real estate sector. Do you think, so you mentioned that there's a lot of mom and pop operations throughout the country. Do you think it would go on the same trajectory as like the waste management industry where there would be a lot of acquisitions and consolidation? I think that's probably true. The main difference I would I would guess is, you know, with, with trash collection, you have that, the difference in the residential versus commercial. Those tend to be, I mean, residential trash collection, there's not much cyclicality there. Obviously, mm-hmm. commercial, there, there would be more. I don't know if there's really been much done on commercial storage or anything like that versus residential, but that would be an interesting thing to dissect. But I do believe that they'll probably grow at GDP or slightly above that. And, you know, there's still a lot of room for consolidation, although, you know, it's anybody's guess as to how quickly that happens because the unique part about trash collection, of course, would be the regulatory nature of landfills. those sorts of things, which probably lends itself more to consolidation than self-storage. So I, I guess I see it as maybe like a necessity from an expense standpoint and waste management versus, you know, the the self-storage guys can afford to be a little more opportunistic because there's, you know, maybe not a lot of urgency on the part of sellers as there would be in waste management, just given landfills and licensing, those sorts of things. But I'm just, or I'm just speculating in that sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And last but not least, so we're both long tractor supply. So I, I like the company a lot. What, what do you like about it? So when I look at a consumer retailer, I kind of look for, for three different things, I guess. And, and one of them is, how, what's the industry structure? If, they're, if it's highly mm-hmm. fragmented, then I think that there's a lot of room for consolidation you know, uh, historically speaking, you have your, I think anyway, a lot of your biggest winners in these industries where you have a lot of weaker players. And so if you're kind of like the Godzilla of the industry, (laughs) you can subsume more and more market share from these weaker players. So that attracts me to that. I think tractor supply is maybe 10 or 11% market share, which I'm not mistaken is 10 or 11 times larger than its next biggest competitor. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's the number. Sounds right. And the other thing is it operates in an industry that's not very cyclical. You know, they describe themselves like a grocery store for people's pets. Mm-hmm. A lot of their customers 
and they they go in there and there's not a lot of discretionary spend. I think they say that about 80 to maybe 80, 85 percent of what they sell is non-discretionary. That's up for debate based on how you categorize it. But I, that's their own number, I believe. So I like that aspect of it. I'm not a big fan of discretionary retailers for the most part. And the, the third aspect is, you know, is it e-commerce resilient? And so, as you know, Amazon has disrupted a lot of traditional mm-hmm. retail. They've made it very easy for people to shop online. Well, what's unique about Tractor Supply is that they, they, they categorize themselves as being life out there in these rural areas where it's very difficult for Amazon or, or those types of companies to deliver these goods on a repeated basis. They're not going to be sending out a truck to deliver, you know, four or 500 pound horse stall mats. Right. You no, know, it's just not economical <laughs> for them. And it's, it's easier for these guys to come into the store once or twice a month and spend six, $700 a pop to get all the stuff that they need and drive back out to their ranch or their farm or whatever. And they also sell many things that are critical. So you don't really have the time to wait for e-commerce or for the delivery guys, I should say, to bring the stuff to you. So those are sort of the three things I, I like about it. And it's very much an American retailer. I don't know if this opportunity would exist in other parts of the world. America mm-hmm. is such a big country with a large, and I would say wealthy rural population with a lot of, of disposable income. True. Yeah. There's a lot to like about it there. So, you know, that's that's kind of how I think about it. And you can look back historically on their evidence of their competitive advantage. I think both Walmart and Home Depot tried to get in on their business and both failed or at least gave up. Mm-hmm. So I think that's evidence that this this particular company is very unique and in, in its industry structure, its insulation against e-commerce, its uh, mission critical parts of, of how it sells and, and to whom and what it sells, I should say. So that's kind of how I think about it. And I don't know if it's a statistically cheap stock, but it's a very high quality retailer in my view. Yeah, it's not deep value, but I think it's pretty reasonably priced. I, I bought it around like a 15 PE or something like that. And I think that's a pretty reasonable price to pay for such a modi business that's so well positioned geographically and Post pretty good returns on capital and still has some room to grow. So yeah, I'm definitely in agreement with that position. Yeah. So before we wrap up, is there anything? Is there anything else you'd like to add? And what are the best ways for people to reach you? You know, I think uh, I guess if I had any closing thoughts, I would just repeat that when you when you go through the investment process, and there's no right or wrong way to invest. It's whatever works for the individual and, and whatever affords that individual the best chance to succeed. So whatever I say or you say, you know, it might work for us, but not for everybody. So that's something to think about too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also just focus on avoiding big mistakes versus trying to get everything right. You know, it's just the low hanging fruit and investing of keeping your taxes low, your expenses low. I'm not a big fan of, of taking highly concentrated or big bets because the downside is outweighs the potential upside in my view. So, you know, those are just the kinds of things that I would stress that if you take nothing else away from our conversation, just focus on the risk management side of things versus trying to trying to be a hero. But totally uh, agree. 
You can find my blog at fortunefinancialadvisors.com slash blog. Haven't been writing as much as I used to, but trying to make up for that with higher quality, deeper dives. And you can find me on Twitter. It's lhamtil, L-H-A-M-T-I-L. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.